Well, amen. Bear the cross as you wait for the crown. Tell the world of the treasure you found. Today we're going to talk about just that, how we are called to do that corporately as Christ's body, as the church. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Romans chapter 12 this morning. Romans chapter 12, we'll be reading verses 3 through 8 together. And we continue, as we started last week, this idea of refocusing ourselves as a church congregation. Going back to the basics. As we enter into a time of transition as a church body, I believe that it is crucial, it is vital, that we focus our minds, focus ourselves on Jesus. And then as we do that, new habits, new ways of life, new patterns are formed in us. And then as we work that out, we live lives of worship. We're able to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to Him, as we learned in Romans 12, 1 and 2. And today, this week, we will look at being God's church, how that renewing of our minds works its way out into our church body on a corporate level. So if you would, please go ahead and stand in honor of the reading of God's Word this morning. Be reading verses 3 through 8 together today. The word of the Lord says this For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually, Members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service, in our serving. The one who teaches, in his teaching. The one who exhorts, in his exhortation. The one who contributes, in generosity. The one who leads, with zeal. And the one who does acts of mercy, with cheerfulness. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you now, Lord, and we thank you for your goodness and grace to us. God, we thank you that we can gather together as your people and we can study your word, we can sing praises to your name. Lord, now as we open this passage of scripture together this morning and as we look at what it means to be God's church, Father, I pray that you would give us open hearts and minds to hear what you would have to say to us. God, I do believe that this word um, is meant to be refreshing, but also will be challenging for us this morning. And so, Lord, I do pray that our hearts would be receptive to what you would have us do, and that you would help Riverview Baptist Church be the church that you call her to be. We thank you for this time, and we ask that you would bless it in Jesus' name. Amen. So now we will see what it means to be God's church together. We are called not just to come together and and do the things that we think we ought to do as a church body, but in Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8, we actually see at least three things that God calls His church to do, or rather, calls His church to be. Three things. I'll go ahead and share those with you right now. The first thing that we must do if we're going to be God's church is we must have a faith-filled humility. We are called 
to walk in humility with one another as a church congregation. We must think soberly about ourselves. The next thing we must do is we must use our spiritual gifts rightly. There's a a way that God calls us to use our spiritual gifts. There's a way to do it wrong. And so we must look at how does God call us as a church body to use the gifts that he has granted to us. But then also, we must display a supernatural unity as his church. That there should be something that marks us and sets us apart as a church body that is different than the, than the world around us. One of the things that I believe is perhaps one of the, the least convincing things we can do about our Christian faith is bicker back and forth as believers. When we bicker, we defame the name of Christ. And so we're going to look to this morning together at these three things that God calls us to do, God calls us to be, as his church. The first thing that we need is a faith-filled humility. Let's look at that in verse 3 together. It says this, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. The simple reality is this, that pride is the problem of every person on the planet. Pride is not my problem, Pride is not just your problem. Pride is our problem. It is a part of being a fallen human on this planet. And each of us has ways that we can grow in our humility. God calls us to be a people that is not prideful, that looks different. And I want to share with you this morning four subtle signs of pride, four subtle signs, four subtle ways that pride sneaks into our lives. The first way is deflection. Deflection. It's the idea that you are rarely, if ever, at fault. I have a uh, little girl who is in kindergarten at School of the Osage. And she got into our car, got into my car uh, this week, and she had a story immediately to share with me as soon as she got into my car. She said, Daddy, I have something I need to tell you. And the way she said it, I knew something's up. And so I'm kind of listening. I said, okay, honey, what's, what's going on here? And, it, it, you know, I'm sure you've all seen this before, but she has the, the green card and the yellow card and the red card. And in my house, you do not want to get a red card. But um, she comes in and she says, well, Daddy, you know, I, uh, I got in trouble today. But being the little angel that she is, she was quick to let us know it was not her fault. She said, Daddy, the reason I got in trouble is because another little girl was talking to me, and we weren't supposed to be talking, but I didn't want to be rude and ignore her. So I had to talk, Daddy. I had to. Yeah, and so she deflected. You see, it wasn't her fault. And one of the the subtle signs of pride in our lives is just this, that we're unable to admit when we're wrong. None of us are infallible. None of us have it all together. None of us have all the answers. And there are times where we will mess up. And as we do, do we have the humility to own our mistakes and to confess our sins one to another? Deflection. The next place that we see uh, pride kind of pop up into our lives is a quick temper. There's a fairly new term that's out there in, in the culture today. Has anybody ever heard of the term road rage? Yeah. 
Road rage. Road rage is the idea that a person would fly kind of off the handle as they're driving in traffic because somehow, some way, somebody wrongs us as we're driving. And so my response, my reaction is to get angry. Why? Because I personally feel wronged. I'm personally angry because the person that cut in front of me must have meant to do it. God forbid that another person just make a mistake, right? So there's no room for grace. There's no room for forgiveness in our lives. We have a quick temper, and we're quick to judge. It shows that I believe the world should revolve around me. Next, thirdly, prayerlessness. Prayerlessness, a weak or absentee prayer life, demonstrates that I don't really need God. You see, a failure to pray says, I can handle it. I can face my day, I can deal with my problems at work, I can face my situation at home, I can, I can handle the things that are coming my way. And so, Lord, I don't need to depend on you, I don't need to spend time with you today and be filled up with you, I can just do it. A day without concerted effort in prayer, I once heard a pastor say, is a boast before God. Because it says I'm good enough. Lastly, and perhaps least obviously, is just very simply this. We believe that pride is not our problem. If we're sitting in the audience or or sitting outside today and, and we think, you know, that really doesn't apply to me because pride is not my problem, I would encourage you to examine your heart because pride is the problem of every person. It's something that we all deal with. It's something that we all struggle with. And in fact... The prideful person is often blissfully unaware of their sinfulness before God. When I don't feel that convicted about my sin or my sinfulness before a holy God, it shows this. It shows in my heart, I believe, I'm good enough. I'm not that bad of a guy. As a pastor, when I talk to people about the gospel, one of the the quickest answers I get when when I ask this question how do you know that God's going to let you into heaven? Do you know what most people say? You know what their response is? I'm a good person. I just need to be a good person. As long as I'm good enough, then I'm going to get in. You see, that's not the gospel. That's not humility. It doesn't show a need for God's forgiveness. It shows I'm good enough. I believe in me. I'm going to ask you to hold your finger in Romans chapter 12 and flip over to Psalm 139 very quickly with me. Hold your finger in Romans chapter 12. If we are struggling with pride, I believe the psalmist lays out an incredible example for us. Psalm 139 verses 23 and 24. I just want to read this to you very quickly. It says this. It says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. So as we struggle with pride, one of our prayers should be that God would know our hearts. Why do we need to pray that? God already knows our hearts, doesn't he? God knows all things. He's omniscient. We pray that God would search our hearts and know our hearts because this, as he does that, He will reveal to us what's in our hearts. And if we are willing to be obedient, if we're willing to follow him and trust in him and repent, 
He'll lead us in the way everlasting. He'll lead us to the abundant life that we're called to. He'll help us turn from our sin and sinfulness and turn to the life that he desires for us. You see, one of the other incredible things about God's word is it often provides the problem, but very quickly it turns right back around and provides the answer to our problem. And in Romans chapter 12, verse 3, I want to see very quickly this answer to our problem that Paul provides. It's the back half of verse 3. He says this, I encourage you not to think of, of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but this, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. There's a powerful word picture here, this idea of sober judgment. Let me ask you a question. What's the opposite of sobriety? Drunkenness, right? And so here's what God is saying to you and to me. When we live for ourselves, when we focus on us, we are drunk spiritually. That we are approaching life with a cockeyed, half-witted view of the way that things actually really are. And so we need our minds renewed. We need to think soberly. It's a, it's a neat thought. It's a neat idea. Paul is calling us to think. And in Romans 12, 1 and 2, what does he say we need to do? We need to renew our minds. And so we need to ask God, Lord, give me a new mind. Help me to see things the way that they actually truly are. Help me to focus on you and not on the things around me. And as we do so, he helps us see reality for what it is. Like a baby born with an addiction, each of us is born drunk and addicted to ourselves. We crave praise from other people. We're quick-tempered. We seek our own comfort. We want our own way. We need to think with sober judgment. How do we do that? Again, the answer is at the back half of verse 3, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. You see, faith is the key to thinking soberly. Faith is the key to thinking soberly. Faith in Christ enables the perfect balance of self-value and self-humiliation. And here's what I mean by that. When I really see myself for who I am in comparison to who God is, suddenly I realize I don't have anything to offer Him. You see, God's almighty. God's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's completely and totally self-sufficient in every way. He's holy and right and good, and I am not. I am none of those things. And so I don't have anything to give this almighty God. But here's the beauty of the gospel. Here's the power of the gospel is Jesus says we're worth dying for anyway. God loves us enough, and so suddenly I find that I should have a sense of self-humiliation, but I find an incredible sense of self-worth in the gospel because the God of the universe loved me and gave himself up for me. You see, next to Almighty God, I'm nothing. Next to others, I'm bewildered. I don't know what to think. I compare myself to this person on my right. I've got things a little more together than they do, so I'm doing okay. I've got a little more money than they do. My marriage seems better. My work life is more consistent. Compared to that person, I think I've got it pretty well together. But then there's a problem. We look on our left and we see the next person over. Well, they've got it a little more together than I do. They're a little more holy, a little more healthy, a little 
better looking. I wish I was more like them. And so suddenly, we're bewildered. We're drunk. We're disoriented. We don't know where to look to find a sense of self-value. And friends, the answer is the cross. Before God, I'm nothing. Before my peers, I'm bewildered. But before the cross, I'm forgiven. You see, there are only sinners at the foot of the cross. There's not first-rate Christians and second-rate Christians and third-rate Christians and, and then lost people and really lost people and really, really bad people. There's only sinners. And what separates the saved from the unsaved is nothing but the grace of God in Jesus Christ. That's it. That is what is so wonderful. I want to read to you Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. You don't have to turn there. Many of you may already know it, but it says this. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And listen to this. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no man can boast. The reason that any person is able to stand before Jesus Christ, this is the the great scandal of the gospel, is that you don't earn your way there. In almost every other area of life, We have to earn our way. We have to navigate life well. We have to be good enough to get the job. We have to be smart enough to to work through college. We have to be careful enough with our, our love life to protect our marriage. We have to earn our way. But the gospel is Jesus bought you. And you didn't do a thing for it. The holy God of the universe gave himself so that you would repent and place your faith and trust in him. And even that, even the faith to do that comes from him. That's how good he is. That's how great he is. So it is faith that leads us to true humility. I want to very quickly give you a definition of true humility. True humility is a brokenness of spirit that leads us to see ourselves the same way that God does. True humility is a brokenness of spirit that leads us to see ourselves the same way that God does. And I want to kind of specify that word brokenness because I think in our culture, when we hear the word brokenness, especially in reference to people, we think of, we think of pain, and we think of shame, and kind of desperation. And I would say that there is a sense, perhaps, that is true. Um, but there's a term in cowboy culture, and I'm, I'm not a cowboy. I don't, know, I don't know if you know me very well, but I don't know a whole lot about cows or horses or anything like that, even though I'm from Mississippi. But there's a term that I understand from cowboy culture that's the idea of a broken horse. A broken horse. And the deal is that a, a horse has to go through a process when he's first kind of uh, caught and taken in. He has to go through a process that on the outside might look painful because the horse is strong and smart and wild and free, and guess what? The horse wants his way. He's not had a master before. He's not had someone guide him or lead him, and so it's difficult for the horse, and the horse fights back. He doesn't want to be saddled. He kicks against the goads. But eventually, over time, the will of the horse becomes bent, and he doesn't have to have his way anymore. And here's the deal. A broken horse is not a useless horse. In fact, a broken horse is now useful for things that he would otherwise not be useful for. And here's the scary prayer that I would invite you to pray as God's church as we're seeking 
him together through this transition is, Lord, will you break me? That's a scary prayer to pray. But Lord, will you break me so that, so listen, so that I can be used for your kingdom in ways that right now I'm not useful for. So Lord, break me. Make me who you want me to be. Help me to be the person that you call me to be. This is what true humility looks like. It's the ability to say, I am what God says I am, and I'm nothing more and I'm nothing less. I'm what God says I am. This is a faith-filled humility. The second thing we need if we're going to be God's church is we need to use our spiritual gifts spiritually. We need to use our spiritual gifts spiritually. And I, I want to unpack that statement for you. The idea is this, that there is a way to use your spiritual gifts to honor yourself and not God. There's a way that you and I can use our gifts to make much of us instead of making much of Jesus. And here's how I know that. In 1 Corinthians 14, we're not going to turn there, but Paul had to write instructions to the Corinthian church on how to use their spiritual gifts. Because what was happening is they were using their spiritual gifts in such a way that their worship services were becoming disorderly. And here's what was happening. One person talks over here. Another person says, I have something to say too. I want to speak. Back and forth and back and forth. And no one is able to focus on what actually matters, Jesus Christ. We're using, they're using their gifts to build themselves up. I would liken using your spiritual gift for you to eating someone else's gift. I was at a Christmas party a couple years back, and I had a buddy who had a, a three-year-old son at the Christmas party. And in the middle of the, of the room at the Christmas party, there's this great big bowl of red and green M&Ms. Anybody ever seen these before, these red and green M&Ms? Yeah, this is a huge bowl. And so the party kind of gets going, and things are going really well, and the adults start talking, and the children are, we think, off kind of playing in another room, and seems like things are going great, when suddenly someone turns and says, oh no, and they look, and there's my friend's three-year-old boy sitting on top of this little table, and he's at the M&M bowl, and he's all just totally red and green. He's just covered in red and green, and he's, you know, he weighs 22 pounds, and two pounds of them are M&Ms, right? He's just eaten almost this entire bowl, and as you might imagine, shortly after this, he gets sick everywhere and makes a big scene, right? Mom and dad are mortified. They're trying to clean up the mess and they're out there decided, hey, we got to get out of here. We're going home. But I'll never forget this. They're carrying him out and they're embarrassed and he's still got red and green all over him. And here's what he does. The very thing that, that had made him sick just a few minutes ago, he looks back and he reaches and he says, more, more. And here's what I would say to you today, Christians, is about using our spiritual gifts. If we use our spiritual gifts for us, they'll make us sick. They won't satisfy us. There's one place we can turn to to be satisfied in life. His name is Jesus Christ. If we try to use our spiritual gifts to build us up or make us look good or, or any other, for any other purpose, they will make us sick. They cannot satisfy. John 6.35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. He alone can satisfy. And so only after being filled with Jesus are we to turn and pour ourselves out.
That's what it looks like to use your spiritual gift spiritually instead of in your own strength and your own power. Very quickly, I want to try to do a, a crash course on spiritual gifts. Um, I could spend time, we could have a whole sermon on spiritual gifts, but I want to very quickly speak about there are seven spiritual gifts that are here, and I want to give you a definition for spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are unique abilities given to us from God through the Holy Spirit for the purpose of building up Christ's church. What's incredible about spiritual gifts is they are actually a sign of the new covenant in the life of the believer. God's Holy Spirit dwells in each person who believes in Him. And what's amazing is this was not the case in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, to access the Holy Spirit, where did a person have to go? They had to go to the temple because God's presence was contained inside the temple behind the Holy of Holies within the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. And so there was no direct access to God. But here's what you and I have, believers. Here's, if you know Jesus, here's what you have. You have Christ in you, the hope of glory. You have His Holy Spirit dwelling in you today. And so in and of ourselves, we are insufficient. But as we rely on Jesus Christ, He is able to make us sufficient to do the ministry that He calls us to. This is why it is so important for you and I to understand our spiritual gifts. You see, using our spiritual gifts is not an encouragement. It's a command. God expects us to use our spiritual gifts in his church for his glory. So I want to do this. I want to help us for just a moment think about these because the first step to using our spiritual gift is obviously identifying it, right? We need to identify our spiritual gifts if we're going to use them well. So let's look at these seven here. Depending on how you count, um, there are around 15 to 16 gifts that are identified in the New Testament. We don't have time to parse all those out today, but I do want to focus on these seven that are listed in verses 6 through 8. So let's read verses 6 through 8 together. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So, the first spiritual gift that we come across is prophecy. What is prophecy? What does this spiritual gift really mean? The way that I would try to describe this to you is that it is the innate desire and ability to proclaim God's word and apply it to people's lives. It's the innate desire and ability to proclaim God's word, but directly apply it to people's lives. The prophet oftentimes sees sin and is disturbed and bothered by that sin, and so they want to speak to it. They want to speak the truth of God's word to that sin. The next spiritual gift is serving. Serving or ministry is what it might say in your translation. And we all know what serving is, but, but here's what I believe sets someone apart who has the spiritual gift of service. It's not that they just serve and they just kind of do it. It's that there is a joy and an endurance that is built into their serving that sets them apart. We all know people like this, right? They're, they're people that are incredible to be around because they just desire to keep going. It's almost like they don't grow weary. You see, even youth grow weary in doing good, but the Lord 
Those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. God, through his Holy Spirit, allows us in our service to rest even as we work, to rest even as we labor. Serving. The next is teaching. This is the ability to teach passionately and powerfully the truths of God's word. The ability to teach passionately and powerfully the truths of God's word. I want you to know that I am thankful for Riverview Baptist Church because I believe that this gift is displayed very clearly and evidently through our life group ministry, not just in our adult life groups, but all through our church body. That there are people here who desire and are certainly able to teach God's word in a small group setting passionately, to teach it clearly, to teach it truthfully. Next is encouraging. These are people who enjoy building each other up, building others up. And um, I have a friend who has a term for this, but they're people magnets. That's what they say. They're people magnets. People are drawn to them. Why? Because when you're around an encourager, you feel seen, you feel heard, and you feel loved, and you don't question it. You know, that person saw me, they cared about me, and they know me. And so people want to be around these kinds of encouragers because guess what? In our society, there's not a lot of that going on. Everybody's too busy with their own agenda, with their own thing. But when we're around encouragers, we know that we've been seen and heard and loved. Giving. Giving. And this is, what does our minds go to as soon as we hear that word? Money. While money is a part of that, money is is not the end of giving. The person with the spiritual gift of giving is one who doesn't just give of their money, although they do, but they give of themselves well. They give in a way that's sacrificial. I have a, a friend who lives in Texas, and, and here's what I knew about that friend. It didn't matter what came into my life. It didn't matter how the chips were down. I knew this friend of mine would literally give me the shirt off his back. Because he loved me. I'd been with him, and we'd been driving around in a car, and he saw somebody with a flat tire on the side of the road, and instantly he said, we've got to help that guy. I said, we've got to help that guy. I've got things I've got to go do. He said, no, we're going to go help him. Why? Because he's giving. He's giving of his time. He's giving of his energy. It's what God had laid on his heart to do to show people God's love and grace in his life. To give well. Then we have the spiritual gift of leadership. Leadership is... Boldness for God that inspires others to follow Him. Boldness for God that inspires others to follow Him. Good Christian leaders are those that are in the church that say this, As for me and my house, we're going to worship the Lord. I'm going after Jesus. Who's coming with me? Those are the kinds of leaders that we need in our church. And those are the kinds of leaders that are set apart, that look different than the leaders that the world holds up. Many of the, the, the leaders that this world holds up They say, hey, look at me. Follow me. Do the things I'm doing because I've got it all together. Leaders who have a zeal, as Paul says, for the Lord, say, follow me as I follow Christ. Let's go. Let's serve our Lord. Lastly, the gift of mercy. The gift of mercy. And everyone, every good church needs plenty of people that have the gift of mercy. You know why? Because we're all sinners. We're all going to mess up. You see, if everybody had the gift of prophecy, church would not be a very fun place, right? We'd all be pointing at each other's sin. I see your sin. You see my sin. But 
Every church needs people with the gift of mercy. And here's what that looks like. It is a warmth and a willingness to overlook wrongdoings. It's a supernatural warmth and willingness to overlook the shortcomings that exist all around us. And so we need mercy displayed in our lives. So first, we need to identify our spiritual gifts if we're going to use our spiritual gifts well. Next, we need to think soberly about our gifting. We need to think soberly about our gifting. I've already talked about this a little bit, but I just want to say this. We need to remember that our gifts are God's grace and power given to us as individuals. And here's what that means. Because I have the Holy Spirit in me, and because God is the giver of every good and perfect gift, I don't need to be jealous of somebody else's gift. I can know that God has given me the exact gift that is best for me and that I can best use to build up his church. There's a, there's a temptation that says, I wish I was the guy up on, on the stage speaking all the time, or I wish I was the person that could just give and give and give and give and give, and I feel guilty about that. No, God has given each of us a spiritual gift, and we are to use it and be thankful for it because it is God's unique grace displayed in our lives. Flip with me to Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. I just want to highlight something. The book of Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. It says this. We need to remember that our spiritual gifts are God's power and not ours. It says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You see, what that verse is saying is very simply this. God empowers real spiritual activity, not us. I can't conjure up in me a renewed heart and a renewed mind, but God can. I can't work up inside of me a desire for God's word, but God can. You see, I can't find enough love inside of me to sacrificially serve others, but God can give me the love that I need. And you and I cannot use our spiritual gifts spiritually apart from relying on the grace and power of Jesus Christ in us. He is the one who is working in us. He is the one who is working out our salvation for us. And we must rely on him to serve and serve well. If we're going to use our spiritual gifts and we're going to do it in our power, there is a warning that I want to give you. And that is this, you will burn out because you don't have enough to give. I don't have enough to give. And so if we're going to use our spiritual gifts and our own power, then we need to just understand burnout is on the way. But if we rely on the grace and strength and power of God Almighty, His peace, His energy, His gifts are limitless. So we think soberly about our gifting, and then we need to find a way to use it in God's church. We don't need to keep it to ourselves. You see, ignorance is not an excuse for not using your spiritual gift. You're called to do it. And so if you don't know what your spiritual gift is, there are spiritual gift surveys that are out there that can be very helpful. But here's the other thing. God has given you his church. And oftentimes, I've found that mature believers can identify our spiritual gifts much faster than we can. They can see God working in us, and they can say, I I believe you might have this spiritual gift. And so get out there and serve and do it and, and see how God might use you in his church today. We need to use our spiritual gifts spiritually. Lastly, 
And finally, we need supernatural unity through our differences. We need to have a supernatural unity through our differences. Let's read verses 4 and 5 together. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Members one of another. You know what that is saying to us today, church? Saying something that that oftentimes we don't like to hear. Saying this, that we are mutually dependent on one another. We live in a pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps culture. We live in a culture that says, watch out for me, watch out for number one, watch out for self first. But what God's Word is saying to you and to me here is that we are designed to need one another. And perhaps nowhere is this truer than in the church. God did not design us to be spiritual lone rangers. You see, Sermons and podcasts and the internet are great things. They are great tools to help get the gospel out. But God has called us to be a part of the church. Those things should never replace your church life. We need one another. You take a man and you put him in prison. And he acts up and he gets put in solitary confinement. And you can take that man and you can accidentally forget about him and leave him there. And what's going to happen to him? He'll go crazy. Why? Because God has designed us, in a very real sense, to need other people. It's a part of the human experience. God has designed us, first and foremost, to need Him. We need His truth, His word, His power in our lives to live the things out that He's called us to. But we need His church. We need accountability. We need encouragement. We need other believers to speak into our lives because on our own, we will go our own way. But the trick is, is, it is true that we are mutually dependent, but we are also truly different. We are mutually dependent, but we're also truly different. The way that Christians work out their faith and display their gifts will not and should not look the same. One of the strange things about church life is that the most natural thing for any one of us to do is to gather around people and sit around people that are just like who? Me, right? I like people who walk like me. I like people who talk like me. I like people who like the same things that I like. I certainly like people who like the same worship music that I like, right? Yeah, and so we want people... And we want to be around people that are like us. But what God says is, no, no, no. We're not all called to be cookie-cutter Christians that look exactly the same. God says, there is beauty in your diversity. And so just as a beautiful painting needs different tones, different pictures, different, different strokes and paintbrushes to create a beautiful piece of art, the same is true in the Christian church. God doesn't want us to look the same. God doesn't want us to be the same because His glory and His power are displayed through our diversity. And so, we need to make sure that we give each other enough room to work out our faith differently. We need to be willing to do that for one another. The eye doesn't do what the nose does. But guess what? You lose one or the other, and you will sorely miss it, right? 
We need to leave room for the church to look different. Every part matters. You matter. I matter in God's church. And you see, our culture is so confused on this idea of unity. Our culture has made the right diagnosis. There's arisen recently in our culture many different divisions, right? Many different stratifications, uh, different pockets of belief, different pockets of of social life and, and what morality looks like and all these different things. Our culture has made the prescription that we need to be united. After all, we are the United States of America, right? But they have prescribed the wrong medicine. Our culture has prescribed the wrong medicine. Our culture is right to stigmatize racism and hatred in all of its various forms. Because these things are truly sinful. They are not God's plan for us. They are wrong and they devalue people who have been made in God's image. But our culture is dead wrong when it demands that we must value all things for the sake of acceptance. Our culture is wrong when it demands that ethical laxity, ethical looseness and squishiness, an unwillingness to call wrong things wrong is not a virtue. That is not praiseworthy. We should not give in to acceptance for the sake of acceptance. We must be people of truth and grace. And that's tricky, Christians, because in our own strength and our own power, what we will do is we will be one or the other. We'll say, I'm a person of truth, and I stand for the truth, and there's a bunch of sin out there, and we've got to go knock it down. It's not what God calls us to do. God calls us to be people of truth, but he also calls us to be people of grace. And in our own strength, we will provide a false sense of grace that says, yeah, I love everything and everyone. Go and live exactly as you want, because God is love. It's only a half-truth, just as the other is only a half-truth. God calls us to be people of grace and truth. I love you, and I care for you. And because I care for you, I'm going to speak about the sin in your life because I want you to know Jesus because he's what's best. His ways are right and good and true. He is the answer to what you're seeking. We must be people of truth and grace, and our standards must be God's standards. If we stop short or go beyond him, we have a problem. If we look to the news media or our political opinions or any other thing to be our standard, we are wrong. The fact of the matter is this. If it's not God's standard, it simply doesn't matter. Because every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And every one of us will stand before Him. And so what matters in this life is not my opinion, it's not your opinion or some other person's opinion out there. What matters in this life is what is God's opinion? And what does he say about the issue? Can I share with you one of the the best things that I believe Riverview Baptist Church has done in the past four and a half years? One of my favorite things that our church has done in the past four and a half years is seeing the Latino congregation that met in our church building on Saturday nights, seeing our church integrate with their church body. The reason I say that is because I believe that it is truth and grace in action. What we are saying together is not that we value integration for the sake of integration. 
What we are saying together is not that we value acceptance for the sake of acceptance. What we are saying together is that our God is bigger than any cultural difference or language barrier or skin color or any other social stigma that may come our way. Friends, Jesus is better and he's bigger. And because of that, we can come and worship together. We can worship together because there is one God, one Father, one Spirit, and one Mediator, our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you. Amen is right. Yes. And so because we are His children, because He is our God, we can walk in truth and grace with one another, and we can walk with truth and grace in the world around us. We have to remember that God's grace is not expressed uniformly. We don't all have the same gifts. We don't all look the same. And so there is the possibility for conflict. We'll have differences of opinions. We will. But that doesn't mean that we're not still called to love one another and bear with one another. You see, love is not carelessly accepting everything a person desires and does. That's not love. Love is the desire to seek the other person's best interests at all times in a self-sacrificing way. It's saying this, even if it costs me, I'm still going to seek your best interest. Even if it hurts, I'm going to do what I can to show you God's goodness in your life. This is love. We know what love is because he first loved us. So, we must be the church that God calls us to be. But friends, Riverview needs you to be the hands and feet that God has created you to be. I want to close by asking you this question. Will you live self-sacrificially this week? How will you lay down your pride? How will you pick up your cross? How will you use your spiritual gift for God's glory today and tomorrow? If we're going to be God's church, if we're going to be the church that God calls us to be, these things are not optional. They are what we are called to do. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your goodness and grace to us. God, we thank you that in spite of our pride, in spite of our our self-seeking ways, that you still love us. Lord, we thank you that Jesus is our example, that you don't call us to do something that you're not already willing to do 